My guest standing by from London is Dr. Gwen Dyer. Dr. Dyer is a world-renowned military historian with a doctorate in military Middle Eastern history from King's College in London and a past service record in the American, British, and Canadian navies. As a scholar, he has taught war studies at the Royal Military Academy in the UK. Dr. Dyer has been a syndicated columnist for over 20 years, many books including War, which was the basis for the television series aired on BBC and PBS. He also wrote Climate Wars, The Fight for Survival as the World Overheats, and uh, Dr. James Lovelock, and NASA's uh, Chief Scientist Dennis Bushnell, and Sir Crispin Tickell, uh, the former president of the Royal Geographic Society, all commended him on that. Nice to have you with us today, Dr. Dyer. Oh, nice to be here. I'm very concerned, as many in this audience, that irrespective of what makes common sense, the, the first point of reference in making a decision, there is no common sense, there is no reason, there is only those in power in Israel, in the United States military-industrial complex, who see the, a war with Iran as extremely financially beneficial because they make money off war, and without looking at the unintended or intended consequences of such a conflict. Could you just take us through, step by step, what you see as potential unintended consequences or intended consequences if we end up engaging in a conflict with Iran? Okay, well, basically, Iran holds all the cards. The U.S. Armed Forces, the Pentagon, play war games when they want to figure out what would happen if, you know? And since attacking Iran one way or another has been on the table for about 20 years, they did something else that annoyed us. So we say all the options are on the table, right, which means we'll attack you, maybe worry about it, buddy. Um, the U.S. military did some war games. In fact, repeatedly over the years they've done war games where U.S. gets into a war with Iran. You know what? Iran wins every time. Doesn't mean it occupies Kansas City or something, but in terms of who's got to come crawling and begging for, for a stop to all this, it's the U.S. every time. Because you're playing on their field. And their field essentially is the Persian Gulf, or if you're going to not annoy the Arabs, the Arabian Gulf. So we just call it the Gulf, avoids all that. But the Gulf is their terrain. They have a shoreline, a coastline that goes right the length of the Gulf, including the exit from the Gulf, which is quite narrow. The Strait of Hormuz is, well, you can't quite see across it, but let me put it this way, the tankers which go in and out uh, to pick up all the oil, about a third, a third of the oil's, world's oil comes out through the Straits of Hormuz. There's, there are traffic lanes for them. You know, when the shipping gets really congested, you got sort of stay over there on the right if you're heading east, stay up there on the north if, if you're heading west. So that's how crowded it is. Now, Iran can stop that. It can shut it down. Iran can respond in all sorts of ways short of that to an American attack, which America can't really deal with. Um, but let's just stay with that one, because in fact the Iranians, well, an Iranian said last week after uh, America tried to screw the sanctions against Iran a little tighter, that if they really started to hurt, they could shut the Gulf. Well, no, they won't do that. But they certainly would do it if they were attacked themselves. And there's not much 
you can do about it because that, what is it, about 700-mile coastline along the north shore of the Gulf is mountains dropping down to the sea most of the way along, and there's a few roads, but uh, enough to get down there and many places along there. Along, It's not a heavily populated coast because it is mountains coming down into the sea for the most part, but you can get down to it. And um, all you need is uh, a ship-killing missile, which basically you can mount in the back of a truck. And the ones the Iranians have got now, the ones everybody's got now, frankly, um, are what they call sea-skimming supersonic missiles. So they come in low, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 meters above the water, and they're moving faster than the speed of sound. Your radar only picks them up, giving you about 30 to 50 seconds of reaction time before it hits you. So, you know, you can stop some if you're a warship, but you can't stop them if you're a tanker. And tankers are as large as the proverbial side of a barn, you know? It's kind of hard to miss a tanker. Now, all you have to do is hit two or three or four of those tankers with missiles. You know what? No tankers will go into the Gulf because no insurer in the world will give them insurance to go through the states of Hormuz if this is going on. So Iran then has effectively, at the cost of a few sea-skimming missiles, cut off about a third of the world's oil supply. And what now, the United that, what, States can bomb Iran all it likes, but it can't stop that from happening. Um, Israel can bomb Iran all it likes, and I suspect it would happen if Israel bombed Iran, because they would assume, and probably rightly so, that the U.S. had said, go ahead. Um, that's why Iran wins. I mean, you know, I, three or four weeks into this, with the world's economies grinding to a halt, the new recession of uh, certainty, the rest of the world is going to be telling the United States in no indefinite terms Stop this now. We're all going down. Except the United Kingdom. They never seem to be able to have the courage to tell the United oh, States anything except your country. The 51st state. Lap yeah, dog of the United day. States. <laughs> Jesus, man. Tony Blair, I don't think you get any lower on the totem pole than him when it comes to compromising your country's uh, no, integrity. I agree. I mean, you know, it's... Uh, um, well, let me put it this I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a British citizen and I live here, but I grew up in Canada, and Canada is worse. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, let me lay out a scenario and see, tell, tell me how much of this scenario is possible or improbable, all right? Yeah. The United States would have to be working closely with the Mossad, who would have agents infiltrated into the, ground, into the uh, community at all levels, they would be using the drones, uh, which would be massive in virtually probably five times more drones to be used in this operation than would be used at any given time in Iraq and Afghanistan, plus all the satellite imaging. They would know which places to bomb. They would use bus, uh, the bunker-busting bus, bombs for the deep uh, nuclear facilities. They would also know they would have to take out the Navy. They estimate they could take out the entire Iranian Navy uh, and any of the supporting vehicles probably with under an hour. They would just, oh, yes. I, they, there's no question about 
they, they would take out all the Air Force, uh, strafing that and blowing those up. So now they got rid of the Navy and they got rid of the Air Force. They would then go after all the military installations and then the nuclear installations. All that would be done rather quick, but then you have two things that they can't take out. They can't take out hundreds of thousands of soldiers who have been armed and preparing for this day. It is inevitable in their minds, even though, to my knowledge, Iran hasn't uh, invaded anyone in over 240 years, no. and, and that we are the ones, along with the British under Eisenhower, and as an invitation from the British to get back the oil uh, monopoly in Iraq, undid the democratic elected uh, um, uh, the government of Iran in 19, what was it, 1953? Uh, yeah, uh, and Mossadegh. Mossadegh. And then we put the shawl in, and he was a tyrant. But mm-hmm. that is all that is all sanitized um, uh, history. We don't even look at that. Instead, we look at we've knocked him out. But what do you do in a country three times the size of Iraq with far more armed people who've been trained for a couple decades in here's what happens if you have to go out there on these missions, whether they're suicide missions where are you going to get these? How are you going to round them up? How are you going to stop them? They're going to be all over. And if Saudi Arabia decides to support this, then because they are principally Sunni and Wahhabi Sunni, supporting the United States, in this case actually supporting Israel, then Iran will then look at what can we can do to hurt the world by knocking out some of their oil fields. And I don't believe that they haven't thought about that as... Why don't we bring Saudi Arabia into this and knock out their oil fields, number one oil producer in the world? And then what does that do to the cost of a barrel of petrol and a gallon of gasoline? How does that affect airplanes and trucks and cars and utilities? What does that do to us at that level? Is any of that in your mind plausible? A good deal of it is. I mean, the the, uh, the outcome... And you don't actually need terrorists uh, sent by Iran to attack Saudi oil fields. Like I said, you just need a few ship-killing missiles on the coast of Iran, you know, mounted the back of pickup trucks, um, and you close the Gulf. I mean, you can go and blow up the Saudi oil fields, too, if you want. There's a fair number of Shia live there. there are, nobody knows, actually, whether in the eastern province where all the Saudi oil fields are, the Shia are a minority or a majority, because it's the sort of thing that if the Saudis count, they don't reveal the results. But certainly there are Shia there, and they would be very cross if, if Saudi Arabia got involved in attacking Iran as well. But let's just leave them out of it. Um, you are assuming that the U.S. would do it with Israel. Now, I think you're probably right, because the Israelis, for all their huffing and puffing, do not have the firepower to do this alone. So let us assume that um, the United States does it as well. It's going to get blamed for it anyway. You might as well do it. If you're going to, if you're going to let the Israelis do it, you do a proper job at least. Um, you'll pay a hell of a price, but but you know the Israelis will not do it on their own, though they're trying to sort of stampede the United States into doing it too. Um, it doesn't matter what you do in terms of destroying the Iranian Navy and Air Force, because they were never a threat anyway. That's not the threat. Um, the Iranian Air Force is practically museum quality. I, I mean, they're still flying F-4s, for God's sake. Um, and, you know, and running out of parts, they're having sort of 
manufacture their own. It's a grown-up industrial country. I mean, they've got lots of talent there, but, you know, they've been under sanctions and, and boycotts and embargoes of various kinds for practically the whole time the present government's been in power, which is 30 years. So they're running out of spare parts and things. Um, but uh, the real problem is they can shut the straits. Now, they can do other things as well. They could, I don't really think there's some Shia fifth column in the Arab countries that's just waiting for orders from Iran. That's, that's uh, a Sunni uh, fantasy or nightmare. Um, but certainly, if Iran is getting hammered very hard by Western countries in Israel, there will be huge sympathy for it among the, the Arab Shia. Um, so you might have some problems there as well. And, of course, the... Um, the the allies of Iran north and south of Israel in the Gaza Strip and in Lebanon, Hezbollah and, and Hamas, would also make a lot of trouble for Israel in that case. They, you could hardly expect them not to try. Um, so there'd be a war in Israel's borders as well, which, of course, Israel would win, but it would actually distract and cause a good deal of damage. Israel has two intelligence services, Shin Bet and Mossad, internal and external. The heads of both those intelligence services in the past couple of months have said effectively, we don't think this is a good idea, guys. You know, the intelligence services in most countries, for all of their many, many faults, are actually places where there is some thinking done. You know, actions have consequences. What would the consequences be? And, you know, the Israeli intelligence services look at this stuff. Um, Netanyahu, um, you know, Lieberman promising to blow Iran to smithereens, all that stuff. And uh, they go, no, no, this is going to end in tears. Do not start this. If you can't win, don't fight. You know? Um and, uh, so, and you know, let's not have this fantasy that we've got to do this because otherwise, you know, Israel is driven into the sea or exterminated or something. Because that's not one of the real possibilities here. Um, you know, let's assume that Iran can build a nuclear weapon if it truly wants to. Um, I think it certainly wants to be able to, whether it actually wants to do it right now, it wants to be able to do it quickly if it gets really scared by a, uh, you know, a, a, a darkening threat in, in, in its own strategic environment, like, you know, a coup in Pakistan that puts Sunni officers who are fanatics in power and they hate Shia and all that, and, and Pakistan's got nuclear weapons, of course, but... Um, but let us assume that they're, you know, that they actually do it. I'm not saying they're going to. I'm not saying that's what they're planning to do right now. I actually don't think it is what they're planning to do right now. But they could do it. So let's assume they did. And, and a year or so from now, Iran has got one or two or three nuclear weapons. Maybe even it's got ones it could put on an airplane or something and fly it and drop on Israel. I think it's highly unlikely they get there that quickly, but let's assume they do. What are they going to do then? You know, here's a country that has attacked nobody in the 30 years that the current regime has been in power, which is perhaps more relevant than the 200 years you mentioned, but that's true too. It, Iran doesn't attack people. Israel has got hundreds of nuclear weapons. 
The United States, of course, has got thousands. Now they've got two or three. Are they foaming at the mouth crazy, and they're going to launch these, knowing that their entire country will be exterminated in response? I don't think so. I mean, you know, the only way you can make this argument is to make the argument that they're crazies, they're mad, they're suicidal. And then you have to explain why they didn't attack anybody for the last 30 years. Who owns the businesses in Iran? That's a missing link. It's almost all of the major guard. It's the major mullahs. These people, if they were suicidal, if they were saying, let's all, you know, I like Slim Pickens in the movie Dr. Strangelove, yeah, let's, all, yeah. let's all ride the bomb down. Um, I don't see that happening. I see these people as wanting money and power. I mean, money and power, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, you know, clergymen of any religion are not exactly exempt from the temptations of money and power. I'm naming no names here, but we could think of a few that aren't living in Iran. Um, Is there any hard proof at this moment, and I've looked at as many documents as in reports as I can, that Iran actually is nearing the completion of a nuclear weapon, or is this just the same propaganda we saw with the uh, yellow cake um, uh, from uh, Niger? Are we in the same place all over again? No, we're not in the same place. We're in a different place because, of course, there, there was no... Iraqi nuclear weapons program. There wasn't even an Iraqi nuclear or uranium enrichment program. There had been in the 80s with with American encouragement when Iraq was attacking Iran, um, but it got shut down. And the United Nations uh, and the International Atomic Energy sent all those teams into Iraq, and they dismantled everything Iraq had. And so when Mr. Bush started talking about an Iraqi nuclear threat. He was actually blowing smoke. You know, I mean, there was just nothing there as was subsequently developed. Now, there is something there in Iran. They are enriching uranium. And the question is, what are they doing that for? And the answer is ambiguous, because you can enrich it to run reactors. And, yeah, sure, Iran's got a lot of oil, but a lot of countries that have oil have reactors, too, like, let's for, you know, pick an example at random, the United States. Um, and France. And, uh, so that doesn't prove anything. And so far, the Iranians have not enriched their uranium to what they call weapons grade. Basically, to run, put nuclear, uh, to run a nuclear reactor, you need uranium that's enri- enriched 10 to 15 percent, 20 percent would be better. To make nuclear weapons work, you've got to enrich it to 90 percent. Um, now, you would actually use the same equipment to do that, you'd accept you'd use an awful lot more. So that gives Iran the capacity to make nuclear weapons, or at least to make fissile material, and if they know how to put it all together, then they can make nuclear weapons. But the Iranian uh, nuclear facilities are all under sort of nonstop surveillance by the International Atomic Energy Agency. There's video cameras with time codes. You can't tamper with them. Um, you know, and there's live feeds. So anybody starts, you know, enriching past 20%, it's going to show. Either the Iranians will step out of the non-proliferation treaty, throw out the observers, and go, you know, um, flat out to get it, and we'll know. Or they'll cheat, and they'll get found out, and we'll know. 
So, you know, the situation's different. The Iranians could do it. But, you know, Belgium could do it, for God's sake. Anybody okay. could do Okay, that. now, my last question, because we're running a little late on this, but I wanted to extend the program because I need to know this. What is the likely outcome financially for goods and services, transportation, the way that American feeds itself with trucks, with these diesel trucks, and 95% of all the trucks are diesel with airplanes, and getting from point A to point B, how would that impact us on the average American, what they would have to pay for gas or other Oh, well, products? you know, the price of gas would triple in a week. I mean, you take, you take out one-third of the world's oil supply, and, and you're going to see $200 a barrel oil before you know it. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, once you, the supply chain's gone down, it's a long time before you can get it back up and running again, even if the crisis only lasts two or three weeks. So, you're talking lost jobs, you're talking incredibly expensive gas, you're talking the kind of, um, you know, lineups at gas stations going around three or four blocks, um, and rationing of gas and national speed limits, slow, slow speed limits to conserve gas, all the stuff you had, in 1974, after there was an Arab oil embargo on, on exports for a while. But this was, you know, a long time ago when prices were very low to start with. Now you're starting from a much higher level. And, um, so, and uh, frankly, there's less, less give in the system. So many Americans would feel a lot of pain. Oh, yes. And we would it. end up with massive shortages because of this. You okay. shortages of everything because there's hardly anything you can, you know, eat or wear or, you know, drive that doesn't depend in one way or another on oil. My final question for you, and it may seem a little afield, but it, for me, it's essential. I see the most dangerous nation right now in the world as far as susceptibility as being Pakistan. You have a, you have a president who's found in contempt, and, and now his, the generals are, think, are putting him in their target. You have, you have their, their government that is polarized. You have enormous shifts in allegiances, and now we find out that they've been working, what we've known for some time, they've been working with the Taliban, they've been working with other terrorist groups, and yet they hold an awful lot of nuclear weapons, and who is to say that they could not end up, some of these re religious zealots, giving the uh, opportunity to get some of these weapons out and use them against any of the enemies they choose to? What is the likelihood of Pakistan having one of these rogue events occur? Well, you can't say it doesn't exist, certainly, but I think it's pretty low, frankly. I, don't, I mean, it, Pakistan's a mess. It's always been a mess. It may see another military coup. It's had three in the last 50 years. Um, but a military coup of the, the sort we've seen before doesn't put crazies in power. It puts the chief of the general staff in power, and chiefs of general staff usually aren't crazy. I mean, you climb that ladder, they pick off the crazy ones early. Um, so, you know, could someone smuggle it out the back door and give it to his brother-in-law who is in al-Qaeda? No, not really. I mean, again, the military do have systems regarding this sort of stuff. Um, could there be a coup that brought crazy young officers to power who were fanatical enough to want to do things that would, you know, kill millions? Um, 
imaginable but unlikely. I mean, there is okay. this is a right. fairly serious army, and the idea that a bunch of young officers could just ignore the entire hierarchy, you know, it's like a major in the U.S. Army taking on the Pentagon. Okay, I just needed your input on this, and I greatly appreciate it. You've been in, uh, giving us some wonderful insights to help us better focus on the truth of what we're faced with, and I thank you very much, Dr. Gwen Dyer, for doing this. Well, you're welcome. And latest book, Climate Wars, The Fight for Survival as the World Overheats, and this is arguably one of the world's most uh, brilliant independent military historians, a doctorate in military Middle Eastern history from King's College in London, and a scholar uh, who's taught war studies at the Royal Military Academy in UK. We haven't heard and seen him on American media giving us a perspective on Iran. That's why I wanted to have this.